Hello, you're listening to the Palmerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit palmerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. All right, well, welcome, everybody. I want to say hi to every, again to everyone who's here with us in person. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Uh, maybe you're watching it live online. Maybe you're watching or listening later throughout the week. Maybe some of you are aware that we have our sermons available at palmerado.com slash messages. They're also on um, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. So you can be able to find them even if you miss here uh, on a Sunday morning. But maybe that's you. Maybe you're watching and listening throughout the week. And if that's you, we're so grateful that you are part of our, our learning, part of our series part of our church as you watch throughout the week. But again, whether you're very first time, whether you've been with us for years, we're grateful to be able to have this time together. And I got to be honest, today is one of those days where I was really tempted to pull out a chair and be able to uh, just got a lot of content, a lot of things I want to unpack today, looking at the word of God. And here's one of the things that before we jump in, excuse me, we're in a series called Rend Your Heart. And it's a Lent series in which we're looking at what it looks like to be able to turn back to God, and not just through outward expressions, but also to have it, that inward heart change that is so important when we come back to the Lord. But when we go into our passage today, we're, we looked last week, and we looked at how in Joel chapter 1 there was the locust swarm, and the fact that it eradicated so much of the... Um, of, of the grain, of the oil, of the bread, of the wine, of the vine and the fig tree, the, something that symbolized fruitfulness physically and spiritually for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites, that it was just completely taken away. And so the locusts came in and it was devastating. And so Joel calls everybody together and says, let's declare a fast. Let's have a moment in which we recognize that we need to just mourn and grieve and allow ourselves to feel the weight of our sadness and of our difficult emotions. That instead of hiding sadness, anger, and fear, God allows, and he makes it very clear throughout his word, that we are to turn with, or turn to him with those hard emotions like sadness, anger, and fear. We don't need to stuff them down and pretend everything's okay. That we recognize that it's okay for things to not be okay. And we run to him in the midst of that. But what I love about God's word, and this is one of the things that, that I get excited about when it comes to being able to share and teach and, and have these moments, is I love when there are things in God's word that happen. And we'll read things in Joel chapter 1 and 2 today, and we'll be like, man, why is, why is this happening, and why are these things difficult, and why are they experiencing these, these, these tragedies, these trials, these tribulations? And it could seem like it comes from God just being a bully, God just being like a vengeful, impersonal deity that's just saying, oh, I'm just going to I'm just gonna attack my people. I'm just going to do these things. But what's beautiful about God's word is that when we study it and when we learn more about it, when we dive into it, we'll see that so many of the things that seem random or that seem like I don't understand come from something that has happened earlier in God's word and earlier in the history of God and his people. And because it's something that comes earlier, we see this isn't vengefulness or vengeance just coming from an impersonal deity. This is, this is God calling his people to return to him. That our sermon today is just called Return to Me, spoken from the words of God. 
And so we'll see how he unpacks that both in Joel chapter 2, and we'll see how it goes even further back into Deuteronomy as well. So before we dive into all that, would you join me in a word of prayer as we receive, get ready to receive what God has for us this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later. God, I thank you that each person who hears my voice is someone who is created and formed and shaped by you, someone who you love deeply. Lord, each person who hears my voice is someone that Jesus died on the cross for to cover our sins if we would return to you and we would turn to you for the first time. And each person who hears my voice, Holy Spirit, is someone you want to draw one step closer to God today. So Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you. And it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Joel chapter 2 primarily throughout the, uh, today. We will have some readings for Deuteronomy 28 and ch- chapter 30, but we'll be in Joel chapter 2 primarily. And I also want to communicate that if you're a note taker, um, we have our sermon notes available with fill in the blanks. If you're not a note taker, but maybe you're someone that will we'll show a scripture on the screen and it'll be kind of quick or you may not be able to dive in. In the notes, we have sections that will say um, where you could dive in a little bit more deeply into some of the content that we are talking about. So I might put one verse on the screen, but there will be sections where it says, hey, read these five verses, read these seven verses, read this chapter in order to get a fuller picture of what we're discussing today. So when we think about in the very beginning, and by the very beginning, I mean in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, we, you, me, we were created we were made, we were shaped and formed, people were created to have a personal relationship with God. I mean, this is not new. If if you've had any context in church, this is not new. You probably could have looked at the fill in the blanks and been like, I bet you he's going to talk about a relationship with God. Like, this is not new. But as I read recently from a, a, um, a leader who said, people need to be reminded more than they need to be taught. Sometimes you, me, we, we need to be reminded that you, Me, we, were created to have a personal relationship with God. And we see this in the very beginning when God is walking amongst his people, when Adam and Eve are in the garden and he's able to walk with them, that they were able to walk and talk and chat and have a type of relationship we cannot even fathom. Why? Because although it is true that God loves us, that we were created to have a personal relationship with him, it is also true that we blew it. That, that, that we have all fallen short because of our sin. And it started back when Adam and Eve, they took the fruit and Eve took it and Adam was right there with her. So we don't blame Eve and say it's just her fault because Adam was there too and he ought to have stepped up and said, hey, we know what God's word said, let's not do that. But they were both enticed, why? Because the food looked good to eat and because the enemy told them that if, he ate th- if they ate this, they would not die. In other words, there'd be no consequences for their actions and that their eyes would be opened and they would be like God. In other words, they would be able to be the ones to determine what's right and wrong. Friends, do you hear the same temptations radiating through our culture today that, hey, there are no consequences for your action. You know, you, 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 there's no such thing as objective sin because, you know, what's your truth that is different than my truth and, and what's sin to you may not be sin to me. So, so we think there's no there's no. Um, there's no like ramifications for our sin. So when there are, we get shocked. But then the idea of thinking that you can be the one to determine what's right and wrong. That we don't look 
the culture is like, oh, we don't want to look to, to this old book in order to tell us, but it's God's living word. It is breathing. It is active. It is speaking to us. It is clear. And it's spoken through the power of the Holy Spirit in order to still, to this day, convict and teach and rebuke and to guide and encourage that all scriptures God breathed. So we were all created for a personal relationship with God, but we've all blown it. Even if it was the people, Adam and Eve are the first ones, you and I still fall into sin. And so you and I, friends, unfortunately, we realize this. Our relationship with God is damaged when we choose to reject him. That's just what it is. When we choose to go another way. So Adam and Eve do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they walk to that and they take it. Ever since then, they had to turn from Eden and they were sent out. And our lives throughout human history and our lives and our own experiences are a way of God beckoning us to return to him. To say, come back. Because we've been sent away. And this idea of repentance, the reason we talk about return to me and the reason we see that in Joel chapter 2 as well as in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 2 is this idea that it's we're walking in one direction. And if God is there, then we are walking opposite of him until we have that moment where repentance just means making a U-turn, turning around and returning relationally and proximity-wise back to God. So when we go, when we flee from God, when we run from him, when we experience this time where we are broken and our relationship is damaged, and sometimes when we're turning away from God, it's out of anger towards God because of something that has happened or has not happened that we wanted to. Other times it's because we don't understand why he allows things to happen. But what we often do is not just turn away from God, but then we turn towards various idols, various things that we hope will fulfill us in the way that can only be truly fulfilled in a relationship with God. So we look to money, we look to power, we look to sex, we look to success, we look to what other people think of us, we look to possession, we look to all these different things, and we say, will you, will you be my idol? Will you be my idol? Will you give me hope? Will you give me value? And so our relationship with God is damaged not just because we turn away from him, but because of what we turn towards. We turn towards things that as God who loves us so deeply, the words in Hebrew for idolatry and adultery are very intertwined. Why? Because when we make an idol out of something or someone else, that's not God. It is like we are committing adultery to the one who loves us most. And so he'll call out in the prophets, he'll call out in the Torah, he'll call out in sections of God's word, and he'll say, this, why are you adulterizing? Why are you going after? And if you want a, a picture of this in the scripture, just look at Hosea, which is the story of a prophet who was called to marry a prostitute in order to symbolize and to show that the love the prophet Hosea had to have for the prophet Gomer would represent the idea of how much God would love his people, no matter how often they would prostitute themselves out to other gods. So see, our relationship, we've been created. God loves us. We're created to have a right relationship, a personal relationship with God. But unfortunately, our relationship with God is damaged when we turn away from him, when we reject him. And he, 
We might understand that, but then this third point is where we're going to land a lot in the scripture this morning. This idea that is hard for us is that we have this dynamic where we turn from God, but then we expect, we get mad when bad things happen. We, we get mad that there are times where, hey, I'm turning after money or power or sex or success or possessions. And then we get mad when money fails us and success never comes and our possessions don't actually help us. They end up possessing us. I mean, we get mad when our idols don't work out, when God the whole time is saying, return to me, the only one who can properly satisfy. So here's what happens. And here's what we wrestle with. And here's where many of us will struggle with God is that we know we have a relationship. We know that we fall short. But we get mad about this because here's the truth. There are ramifications when we damage our relationship with God. However, and this is a big however, they are best seen as disciplined by a loving father rather than as punishment by a vengeful deity. They are best seen as discipline from a loving father rather than as punishment by a vengeful deity. These ramifications that when we pursue another idol and we walk ourselves down that road and then when our lives fall apart or when things fall short or when things don't go well, instead of being, God, how could you allow this to happen? He says, it's because I love you. I want you to see the end of that road is not your satisfaction, is not your value, is not your hope. Instead, three words, return to me. Repent and you turn. Come back and enter into a relationship with me again. Now, we understand this idea of discipline by a loving father. Hebrews chapter 12 points us to the idea that, you know, do not make light, verse 5 and 6 say, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. It's like when I, when I go to a park uh, playground when the kids were younger, and it's like when our girls would do something like if they were to do something like, I don't know, cut in line or something. I'd say, hey, don't, don't, you know, don't do that. Let them go first. But we don't like it if someone were to discipline, like if I were to discipline someone else's kid, it would be like, hey, don't do that. And they're like, hey, back off. Like that's my, that's my son. That's my daughter. So when the Lord disciplines us, when he rebukes us, when he tries to stop us from continuing on in a path that will ultimately end in our destruction and dissatisfaction, it's because he disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines his kids. And so we see this, that, and he chastises everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 6 and 7 say, endure hardship as discipline. God is creating, excuse me, treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? He's saying when you experience discipline, it's not because God is vengefully punishing you. It's because he loves you enough to show you right and wrong and to stop you from going down the wrong path. So there's, uh, I remember growing up and um, watching a movie that you all will recognize. And I'll, I'll show you in a second. But, um, and it's this, this image of these kids and their guardians who go to this factory that makes chocolate, if I'm not being subtle enough yet. And there's a moment where uh, there's, this girl named Veruca Salt. And if you remember Veruca Salt, she's on this side right here. And she sings this, so, this song that's like, I want it now. And it's this whole idea of like, she wants like 10,000 tons of ice cream. And if she doesn't get the things that she's after, 
I'm going to scream and starts like kicking things and Shaylin will watch it. She's like, that'd be fun to act. It's like, it'd be fun to act, but not to live, right? But it's this idea of the dad is like, oh, we can buy you a golden goose, honey. How much is a golden goose? And Wonka's like, it's not for sale. Oh, just name your price. That was me trying to be British. I'm sorry. Um, and then he's saying, you know, there's, it's not for sale. And he's like, oh, well, we'll get you this and it'll do all this. He never says no, which creates a terror of a child. Entitled, rude, selfish. And so a father or, or any parent disciplining and say, saying, no, no, it's, you need to be able to hear no and to be okay with that. You don't have to always like it. We don't like it, right? As grown, we still don't like someone saying no, but we need to be okay with it, especially when it comes from our loving father. Another example, a more recent example, one that my girls will grow up knowing more about is Dudley Dursley from Harry Potter. And in this scene, uh, this is from the first book and from the first movie, and Dudley, he looks so mad because it's his birthday. And because he received, his parents, Vernon and Petunia, gave him 36 presents. But last year, he had 37. He's like, how many presents are there? 36. Well, last year there were 37. He's like, well, these gifts are bigger. I want more. And so they say in the book, like, okay, we'll buy you three more presents at the zoo. That way you have 39. And so it's just this idea of they never said no. They never disciplined. And it creates a terror of a child, someone who's entitled, rude, selfish, and so we could see these examples in movies and books and in culture and say, yeah, we don't want to be able to just never say no to our kids. We don't, we don't want that. We, we want them to be more well-adjusted, to be selfless, not selfish, to not be rude, but to be kind and gentle. We want them to experience a life in which they're able to hear no, because they will, whether it's at school or whether it's at work or whether, whatever, at some point they will hear no. And so whereas one generation of parents were the helicopter parents, you've heard this verbiage before where they hover over their kids to make sure they're watching over thing. Now you hear about the snowplow parents, which is the culture that removes every obstacle from their kids so that their path is so easy, they never face resistance and then never grow resilience. So we could see this. And when we hear in, uh, in the, the author of Hebrews saying, Who, which father doesn't discipline his kids? And we see a negative example. We say, oh, yeah, fathers need, parents need to discipline their kids lovingly, not as vengeful punishment, but as the discipline of a parent who loves their kids. The Hebrews chapter 12 continues on, jumping down a couple of verses to verse 10. They, being earthly parents or earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, amen, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so here's where we're going to jump into the scripture this morning. Because if you're following along with your notes, we're talking about how there are ramifications. There are things that take place in God's people's lives when they reject him and when they turn away from him. And they, they follow these other idols, these other pursuits, and they've turned their back on God. And so... When we look at the passage, we're going to review a little bit from last week, and then we're going to read from Joel chapter 2, because the first thing that you'll see that is mentioned in Joel chapter 1, and then also mentioned in Deuteronomy 28, is this idea of locusts. We talked about this already, but on our notes, we have locusts. 
Joel 1, 4 talks about when the locust swarm has left the great, or what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten, what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten, what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. In other words, the locusts have destroyed and eradicated everything. We talked about this last week, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But where does that come from? It comes from in Deuteronomy chapter 28 when God is talking to the people, actually Moses is talking to the people and he's giving his final sermon before they are to enter into the promised land. And Moses, he gives a history. He talks about how God has showed up. And then he talks about Deuteronomy 28 verses one through seven, I believe. Talk about this idea of here are the blessings when you obey me. You're gonna be able to have fruitful vines and crops. You're gonna be able to have, you're gonna, armies will flee before you. And he says, this is what will happen. But then he takes the next, let's see, that was, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. But then 15 through the rest of the chapter, which goes to, oh, I don't know, 68 verses. So the next 50 verses are curses for disobedience. What's one of the curses for disobedience? It's going back to locusts. It says, you will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. So when God's people experience some of these things, they say, okay, God, why is this locust swarm happening? We mentioned last week in the Bible Project video that we kind of used to introduce that Joel was a prophet who was very well-versed in the scriptures before him. That he, they listed off six, seven different books from the Old Testament that Joel refers to or he talks about or he image, has the same imagery to. And so at the end of that part of the video, they say, you know, maybe Joel doesn't give a specific thing, a reason for the judgment, because he expects us to know enough about God's word to be able to figure it out. And we start to see, okay, well, locust is part of what happens as one of the curses for disobeying God and for turning away from him and pursuing other idols. Let's go to the next one. You'll also see that there will be problems with the herds and the flocks. We read this in uh, Joel chapter 1, verse 18 last week. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. Again, it's a text that it's one verse near the end of the chapter that we may not necessarily see the connection of until we see God's word as a bigger, more fuller picture of his revelation to us. And so when we tie that back and see, okay, when Joel as a prophet would see the herds and the flocks are having problems. Where does that come from? It comes from Deuteronomy 28, when we see in verse 18, the different curses that come from disobeying God. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. These are not random punishments that are just meted out by a vengeful deity who's impersonal. These are disciplinary actions that say, if you don't do this, or if you do the wrong thing, there will be ramifications for your choices. God's people, if you are to turn away, you'll experience locusts. You'll experience problems with your herds and your flocks. And then we'll also see in the next one is that you will be attacked by a foreign nation. You'll be attacked by a foreign nation. Now, I'm going to read Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, I want to address something right off the bat. If you're following along in the New International Version, you're going to see at the top of chapter 2, it's going to say an army of locusts. Now, some of you will have something that's more like an invading army or something like that. The reason I want to bring that attention to you is that there's two different ways of viewing Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 can either be a reiteration 
or a more um, symbolic picture of Joel chapter 1 talking about the locusts swarming and the attack of the locusts that we read about already. But one of the reasons that's a little bit harder to, to connect is this idea that the talks, and Joel talks about in chapter 1, that there was a previous day of the Lord when the locusts came. And now we'll start to see in verses 1 and 11, he's talking about an upcoming a different time frame that was coming that would be another day of the Lord, an imminent day of the Lord that was coming, but they didn't quite know when. Another example that you're going to see is that in the description, it's going to say that this army was like ones who would attack and sweep over a wall or like ones that would go into the house. And it uses imagery that talks about weaponry. It talks about attacks. And it talks about lining up in ranks and attacking that way. And so we saw the locust swarm video last week and there was a lot of them, but there weren't ranks that were breaking in in perfect formations. And so what a, a good amount of the commentators are talking about is that instead of it being a reiteration of the locust swarm in chapter one, or just saying, hey, it's going to be a new locust swarm coming up, that what it's talking about is using the same verbiage and using the same picture, word picture of locusts in chapter one that destroyed the nation to refer that to an upcoming army that will destroy the nation. So let's read Joel chapter 1 through 11. It's not on the screens. Let's just leave this slide up for a little bit here. Verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in, trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. There is that verbiage, day of the Lord, as something imminent or upcoming rather than past. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes. In other words, the, the army is going to come inevitably just like dawn coming across the day. You can't stop the dawn from shining light on the land. Yeah, there's clouds, but the light will still come. In other words, this army will still come. Such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. He's pointing us back to Eden. Even if it's just a word picture to connect us to why, because we were created to have a personal relationship with Jesus, with God. We were created, and yet we've all fallen short. So even the most beautiful picture of Eden and of this beautiful garden, that's what it might look like ahead of time, but behind them, it becomes a desert waste because the army destroys everything. Nothing escapes them. Verse 4, they have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. Verse 6, at the side of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. So this is either really strong poetic verbiage for swarms, but swarms don't break, they, they would break ranks. They would jostle each other. They would do all these things. Instead, it's pointing to an organized, vast, foreign army that is going to attack God's people and leave it shattered. Verse 10, before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. And then verse 11, which is here on the screen, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful, who can endure it? And we read all that to paint the picture of the terror, of the dread of that day. And then we have this moment in verse 11 when it says, the Lord will be at the head of that army. 
We see this same thing in Habakkuk when he's talking about, when he's crying out to God with the Babylonians and saying, God, why are you using a nation worse than us to discipline us, to chastise us? They're worse. And yet God says, I can use worse. I'll take care of the Babylonians, he talks about in Habakkuk. I will take care of them in the future. But I want to show you how far you've turned away from me to the point where I will use a worse nation than you in order to show you how far you've fallen, in order to show you that there are ramifications from turning away from God as the, the one who loves his people like a husband loves a wife. Then we see here, where does this come from? Why is another reason why we think that this is a, well, I would postulate, I'm not going to speak for all of us, but why I postulate that this is not just an army of locusts, it's a foreign army. It's because this continues on in Deuteronomy 28, what different ramifications there are. It says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. Again, the Lord will bring the Lord thunders. It's the head of the nation, the head of the army here, and he'll bring the nation from far away here. From the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. Deuteronomy 28, 49 through 50. And so we're starting to paint this picture that, yes, we were created to have a personal relationship with God. Yes, we've all blown it. We all have sin. We all fall short. And there are consequences. There are ramifications. And for us today, we recognize that there are ramifications for when we fall short. If we turn to idolatry or if we pursue money or success or sex or power or people's opinions of us, if we pursue that, we will look back and see a wake of the people we ought to love most behind us. That once where there was a, a beautiful family, our workaholism causes it to be something where they're just laid to desert waste. Before us, when we once see a hope for a beautiful marriage, we see brokenness and lies and devastation. Before us, when we once saw a potential Eden of our kids growing and knowing and loving the Lord, we see rebellion and rejection. And we see, if we're not careful, people who, kids who've not been disciplined to the point where they don't, they're, they're people who are selfish and rude and entitled. And so all this paints a picture, verses 1 through 11. This is heavy. Joel is not an easy book. We chose it for this season because this is supposed to be a heavy season leading into Easter in the sense of just recognizing, okay, there's brokenness in our lives. There are weights. There are things that we ought to pray for. There are things that we ought to declare a holy fast and fast that God would move in these different areas in our lives. That we look and we think, God, why are you allowing these awful things to happen? Is it because you're vengeful? Is it because you're impersonal? Is it because you don't care? He says, no, it's because I'm a loving father who disciplines the ones he loves. He says the same three words to us now that he says to them, return to me. So this leads us to our next point. True repentance must be deeper than external actions. It must be a heartfelt return to God. When Elise was probably, I'm guessing about two years old, um, old enough to talk and to understand, so maybe two, maybe three. And I remember she did something, and I've, I've shared this story before, but it's been a little while. And I remember she did something, and I don't remember what it was. But she did something that I was like, hey, honey, that's, that's not okay. Can you, can you say you're sorry? And, you know, when sometimes kids don't always like to say sorry. Sometimes we, you know, we don't always like to say sorry, even when we know we're wrong. But she says, I'm sorry, Daddy. And I say, I forgive you, honey. And she says, I forgive you, too. And I said, 
but I didn't do anything wrong. And she said, me neither. And so, and it's this moment when it's like we could do the external. We could say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. But if we don't understand what went wrong, if we don't understand on the inside the actual reason for the apology, it becomes an external action rather than a heartfelt return. And so we see here, we could look, go, go to the next slide. And following along in your Bible, Joel 2, chapter 12 says, Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. He says, even now, if you've, instead of being in a relationship with me, you've turned away from me, you've committing adultery and idolatry, and you keep going. It doesn't matter how far along this path you've been. Even now, the Lord says, return to me. Return to me. Those same three words he calls us to. So then Joel says, rend your heart to the people and not your garments. Don't just do the external show of remorse. They would rend their garments and they would wear sackcloth in order to show that they were in a season of remorse. He says, don't just show that by, through, your, through outside external actions. The people can say, oh, you know, that, that person's in mourning. It's allow God to tear your heart to be broken for what breaks his. It's saying, don't just say, I'm sorry, and then say, I, I forgive you too, why? I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, me neither. It's not just going about what someone says to do. It's about allowing that heartfelt return from the Lord to beckon us back. When he says those three words, return to me, it doesn't matter how far gone, even now I will receive you. Even now I will bring you back. Even now we can have restored relationship. Even now things can get better. We continue on. Verse 13, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, verse 14, who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. This who knows echoes Jonah in chapter three when the Ninevites, who Jonah did not want to speak to, he did not want this evil Assyrian nation to receive the the proclamation of who God was and then repent from his ways. But he ends up going after falling in and, and getting swallowed by the large fish. He gets spewed out, goes to Nineveh, and he says, the Lord is mad at you. And the, the, the leader of the Ninevites, the, the leader of the city just says, everyone repent. Everyone go and let's, let's do sackcloth and mourning. And what's he say? He says, even now, who knows? Maybe the Lord will relent. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will turn from this judgment and receive us. And Jonah is angry because he said he echoes this statement he said Jonah 4 2 says God I knew that you were righteous and slow slow to anger gracious compassion abounding in love I knew you would do that and we think oh it's a beautiful verse and it is but in Jonah when he says it in chapter 4 verse 2 it's he's mad that the character of God would let people like them in that have gone further down the road that are more evil that are worse to say how can you let them in Lord so Jonah stays outside and he's angry and he mourns over this, this plant that covers him and provides him shade and then it dies. And he says, God, I'm mad at you about the plant too. And God says, should you be more angry about the plant than about the 120,000 people, not including animals that were in Nineveh? And Jonah's like, yeah, and the book ends. Like it's just one of those where it ends with this idea there's not a full resolution, but we use this because this same verbiage 
Verse 14 echoes what the Ninevites say in Jonah 3. Who knows? God may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. But notice the blessing in verse 16 is not the people just getting all their stuff back yet. The blessing is so that they could be able to have enough grain and enough wine in order to provide the offerings to God in worship. It's not just to fill their own coffers yet. He's saying, who knows? Maybe when we turn back, it's not so we can just get what we lost. It's so that we can give God what he's owed. That we could worship him in the midst of our brokenness. That there would be enough provision that we could return to God. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Now listen how everybody in the city is included in these next few verses. It says, bring together the elders, gather the children, even those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Back in the day in Deuteronomy, we see a rule that when someone is newly married, a newly wed couple, the man would be prevented from going to war for the first year within their marriage. And so this blowing of the trumpet is both used for calling to battle, to war, which is what, why we see the blowing of the trumpet in chapter 2, verse 1. But it's also used to say, let's call a fast. Joel is saying, listen, I'm blowing the trumpet as if we were going to go to war, and I'm blowing the trumpet to call us a sacred assembly, a holy fast, and even those that would normally be absolved from it because they're newlyweds, even they need to keep praying, and even they need to fast and turn to the Lord. No one should be excluded. Verse 17, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? He calls them all to this repentance that's all together, this holy fast, the sacred assembly, saying if we all were to turn and we all were to not just do outward shows, but have an inward heartfelt return to God, then who knows, maybe he would heal our land. Maybe he would restore us. Maybe he would do a thing that we could not imagine. Maybe he will mean us here, even though we've gone so far. We see a picture of this in James chapter 4 when he talks about the importance of repentance. James chapter 4, 8 and 10 say this, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Friends, that is a beautiful, beautiful promise in God's word. When we flee from God, he may give us over to our own desires. He may allow us to walk down that path. But when we come near, so does he. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And George Stulak, he writes a commentary about that passage in James that I thought was beautiful for our point today. He says this whole paragraph in James 4 is a portrait of repentance. Repentance is an act of humble submission to God, which includes a choice to resist the devil and to draw near to God, a commitment to moral purity both externally and internally. It's not just the outward show. It's the inward heart. And then it also includes a genuine remorse for one's sin. You cannot fake it. You, you can't just say, okay, God, I'm, I'm like super duper sorry, so sorry. It's seeing your own brokenness and your own sin. It's recognizing truly how far away you are from God and the relationship you were meant to have. It's, it's that turning around. It's that repentance of making a 180 and listening to the voice saying those three words, return to me. And then it's taking the first step and knowing once you take the first step, you come near to God and he will come near to you and you'll meet in the middle. Just like we see with the prodigal son, which we'll talk about again next month. 
So here's the main point. Normally I'll do a main point at the beginning. Here's the main point at the end. It summarizes all this and it serves as our final point for today. God's heart is to restore our relationship with him once our hearts have returned to him. God's heart is to restore our relationship with him once our hearts have returned to him. It's recognizing he's a father who loves to bless his kids, who loves to be the giver of good gifts, who loves to be able to answer our requests the way that we need them, not always the way we want them. He loves to be a good dad who gives to his kids. But when we're going off, he needs to show us that sometimes we need to hear no. Sometimes we need to be disciplined. Sometimes we need to know that the end of our road that we are pursuing away from God will only lead to dissatisfaction and destruction. And a loving father does not let them go off. He gives enough roadblocks and obstacles and heartaches and trials to say, will you return to me? There's two different types of restoration we'll see in the passage today in Deuteronomy 30. The first, restoration of God's blessings. Restoration of God's blessings. Doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. Doesn't mean you're going to get everything you've ever wanted. Doesn't mean that our wants then become needs that he is, uh, he has to give us. But we see the restoration. Follow along. Deuteronomy, excuse me, Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. So he's going to provide what's needed for the grain, for the grain offerings, the wine, for the drink offerings, and the oil that was for the anointing and for the lampstand. I will give you what you need. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you. It's not the same word as swarm with the locusts. So this is another clue from verse 20 that we see that it was a northern army that God was, um, that God was leading from chapter, uh, verse 11 pushing it into a parched land and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Remember, everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree and nothing will make them afraid. Fig tree, vine, verbiage showing us the fruitfulness, both physically and spiritually, be restored and return to God's people. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And verse 25 I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the old, other locusts and the swarm, my great army that I sent among you. He's saying, I will restore you. I will repay you for what you've lost. We see this in the story of Job, that he had more at the end, but that doesn't mean the loss wasn't there. He still lost his kids. He still has pain and grief, but God restored him. Then we see in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the same idea, verse 3 says this. Verse 2 talks about, And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord, will your God, will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. So you can read more in there, but it's this idea that we see in this commentary right here. Dwayne Garrett says, the hope is that repentance will be followed by restoration. In particular, Joel looks for a restoration of the agricultural prosperity. 
so that they could make offerings in the temple. This would be a sign that, once again, they were under God's favor. Saying, God, if you are favorable for us, if we return to you and we turn around and we come near to you, would you come near enough to us to provide the grain and the new wine and the oil so that we can worship you, so that we can give you offerings? And God, as we come near to him, will come nearer to us. He meets us part of the way, but he waits for us to return to him. Lastly, the restoration of our relationship with God. Let's go Joel 2, chapter 26 through 27. We're going to stop here for our purposes um, for this week's message. Verse 26. God keeps saying, he says, You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. He's saying, You are now back as part of my people. You will not be ashamed in front of others, and we will have this again, continuing on. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the I am who am. Remember, Lord is the, that word Yahweh's, I am who I am. So he reiterates the I am verbiage in this section. You will know that I am in Israel, that I am the great I am, your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be put to shame. He's saying, we will have this relationship again that we were always meant to have, that I am your personal, your eternal, your loving father, the God who created and shaped you and formed you, the God that you have been created to have a personal relationship with from the very beginning. And yes, there's damage to the relationship when we fall away, but repentance means a heartfelt return, and then we get to see the restoration start to take place. And through that, we see this. Warren Wearsby talks about this. He says, The one thing that encourages us to repent and return to the Lord is the character of God, knowing that he is indeed gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, which is, again, Joel 2, 13. That ought to motivate us to seek his face. You know, now it's when, if, if there's a time when I know uh, Elise and I, you know, maybe she says something or does something, and I say, honey, that wasn't okay. And sometimes... Sometimes she'll go in the other room and close the door and I'll knock on the door and she's, you know, in a corner, like kind of separate. Um, and I'll come in and we'll talk. And again, I'm, I'm not a perfect dad. I'm not anywhere close, but we'll try to talk and figure out what happened. And you know how I know that we're okay again, she and I? Is that when she's in the corner, when she's under her desk or when she's in a separate section of the room and when she gets up and crawls over, and sits on my lap again and returns to me, returns to my embrace. And I say, are we good? Or, you know, she'll, I'll say, I'll forgive you, and she'll say, she'll forgive me, and neither of us will say, well, I didn't do anything wrong either. <laughs> but it, the relationship is restored when the proximity is renewed. When we are closer and there's a heartfelt return, we are, we're able to have that moment of say, okay, we're, we're good now. And God is saying, no matter, even now, no matter how far gone down this road, even now, if you would just follow these three words, return to me, you could come back and I'll come near to you as you come near to me, he says. And then in so doing, the relationship is restored when the proximity to God is renewed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service this morning, Lord, recognizing that, God, in a, in a room this size and not knowing how many people are watching online, that we all, Lord, experience, um, we all experience the brokenness that comes from our own decisions, our own walking away, our own uh, 
the damage that we've made to the relationship with you by our rejection. But Lord, we've also experienced brokenness that was outside of our control. But even when it's not something wrong we did specifically, Lord, we acknowledge that you might be putting obstacles and roadblocks and trials and tribulations in order to show us that what we are pursuing, if it's anything or anyone other than you, what we are pursuing will only lead us down the road of dissatisfaction and destruction. So Lord, I pray that for all of us, no matter where we are in our walk with you, whether we've known you and loved you for years, but we know we're struggling, whether we have never surrendered our lives to you, whether we are somewhere in the middle, God, may we hear you whisper these three words to us to return to me. And may we take hold of your promise that as we do and as we come near to you, you will come near to us and meet us here when it's not just an external, but an internal heartfelt return. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, we're prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.